You know, it's almost a week before Thanksgiving, and I don't know about you, but I'm running errands, prepping, planning, and preparing all the peas for Thanksgiving here in the States. I thought you would get a kick out of this conversation I had with India Hicks recorded back in October 2020 for Decorating by the Book's companion podcast, Cookery by the Book. I caught up with India to chat about her book called An Entertaining Story. Tis the season to eat drink, be merry, and entertain. So on with the show. Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hello, and my name is India Hicks, and I have just recently published a book called An Entertaining Story. Part cookbook and part reflection on parties past. This book is a good reminder for us all about how to throw a dinner party. How have you been entertaining during this crazy time? For the first couple of months, like most of the world, we were locked down on our properties and certainly not allowed out. I live on a very small, tiny island in the Bahamas called Harbor Island, and it's only three miles long and half a mile wide. But the Bahamas took the... um, the lockdown very seriously. The prime minister is a doctor and he could see that it would be very detrimental to a nation such as the Bahamas where there is no medical infrastructure whatsoever. So the lockdown was so harsh and draconian that we were not actually even allowed out of our properties. We weren't allowed to the beach. I very, very luckily um, have a, a garden, a large garden. And so I was at home with my other half, David, and my five children. And it was rather an amazing time altogether. But one of the things I really noted was even though we weren't entertaining as such, we certainly weren't inviting friends over, we didn't see anybody for a couple of months, I still wanted the time that I had together with my kids when we were actually sitting together at supper to to feel memorable and meaningful. So, yes, of course, breakfast, everybody made their own, and lunch, sometimes we even skipped if we just weren't making sandwiches. But dinner... Um, we insisted that the kids learn to cook something as they went along. And when when one kid said he was going to make cheese souffles, we thought, right, this is a real cause for celebration. <laughs> um, it was quite an, an intrepid first meal to, for him to be undertaking. But I really went to great lengths to lay a beautiful table to make sure that the candles were lit, to make sure that the linen was starched, to make sure that there was a pretty tablescape. Because I think it was it was a lovely evening for us to sit together as a family. So it was interesting that the world had stopped and the way we had entertained had stopped. But the way we were gathering together as a family hadn't stopped. And I think that that still warranted making the extra effort around the table. We also celebrated a lot of birthdays. I think we went from uh, March, April and May to having three different birthdays in every month. Um, And we certainly went to great extent to make um, beautiful and imaginative cakes. I made a Corona cake. I can't cook Susie at all. So you're talking (laughs) definitely to the wrong person for your podcast. But I can bake and I certainly can decorate. And I made this Corona a cake and it had a, it had a face and a big blue mask going across the top. We did have a lot of fun with that. I had never made. Um, I think we call it royal icing. You call it something different. I think in America, but I'd never made it before. And I found a recipe that involved melting marshmallows to make the icing. So that was kind of fun. Organized by meal, this book begins with the most important meal of the day. And what is that? Well. 
I felt that that was drinks time. Um, there's something really comforting about the drinks hour, um, not only because it involves alcohol for the m- most part, but also it's a, it's a sort of, it's the prelude to what comes next. And I think sometimes we rather take it for granted. In my book, I talk about let's let's make the most of it. So if you are not necessarily able to set up a very pretty arrangement at the end of a dock during a during a sunset on a tropical landscape, don't worry about it. That's okay. But if you can find a new corner of your apartment to set up an interesting drinks table, that's just lovely. If you can have it in the garden, that's even better. So just be a little bit more imaginative with the way that you actually host drinks. I also, as I said, cannot cook. I am what's known as a culinary idiot. But I <laughs> <laughs> certainly can lay out a platter of all different kinds of choices so that when you've invited someone over for drinks, and it may be a grumpy mother-in-law, it may be a new colleague you're trying to impress, it may be the mother of a school friend of one of your kids, but it is nice to give somebody something to eat while they're having their drink. And I said that it's so easy to lay an imaginative platter, and it may have honeycomb on it in different types of cheeses and different types of salamis, and it may have dried fruits, but it's just fun to put it together, and you can do them by colour scheme, or you can do them by vegetable or fruit to piles up together however you want but it, i think it's i think it's a fun and an inviting way to start a drinks hour so your culinary skills or lack thereof have been inherited from your mother you said she can barely boil an egg but she's very good at peeling grapes is that hilarious That's- that's that. That's well. It's 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 only hilarious when you really realise that that's the truth. It, I don't want it to, to to sound like she's absolutely useless because she's certainly not. In the times that she might not have spent in the kitchen, she certainly made up for with having a very extraordinary progressive mind, and she is very well versed on everything. Um, deeply knowledgeable, virtually in the encyclopedic memory, even at ninety one. So, I think it was actually a good thing she wasn't in the kitchen because she was doing a lot of other very worthwhile things. Since you got those culinary skills from your mother, you Mm -hmm. um, have Claire Williams around. Can you tell us about her? Definitely. We call Claire our top banana, and I'm lucky (laughs) enough to have had Claire join our family 16 years ago. She came out from England, and at the time I was working and traveling quite a bit for work, and so needed a nanny to be there with the kids. David was also working, and so Claire arrived as a Mary Poppins type figure into the household. And soon it was evident that actually she she enjoyed her food as much as she did looking after the children. And so she sort of graduated into the kitchen, which has now become very much her headquarters. And so there are recipes in the book, but do not for a moment think that I have either tested them or tried them. They are very much Claire's recipes. And I asked if we might borrow some for the book. We chose them very carefully because I thought the book is actually quite relevant for right now what's going on in the world, because we are talking about entertaining again in a very meaningful way where when you get the opportunity to be with people, you want to make the most of it because God knows how long we're going to have those opportunities now. You know, any stage, the British government is going to shut us back down. Any stage, I'm actually in Paris right now, the bars and restaurants are going to close. So when I'm with people, I want to make sure that it's really the people I love and want to spend time with or who inspire me or who educate me or excite me. And so having that time together, I think you don't necessarily want to be overly thinking about your menu. So all of the recipes that we've included in my book are actually very relevant for right now. They're they're comfort food like honey roasted sausages or mackerel pate or chicken pot pies or an apple crumble. There's nothing very fancy. It's all very doable. 
One of my favorite photos in the book is on page 46, where your mother's cutlery mingles with your father's. I would be remiss if we didn't chat for just a bit about your parents. So there's really nothing more elegant than that photo of your mother with her breakfast tray on page 202. I read Daughter of Empire this summer next to the pool, and did your mom have a life? Um, I also have to say I'm crazy about your podcast with her, and basically any time you sit down with her. I'm curious to hear just a little bit about her and that breakfast. And by the way, her memory is incredible. Well, I'm so glad, Susie, that you've really done your homework. Not only have you you can number the pages in my book, but you can also reference the title of my mother's book. Yes, I'm I'm lucky to have had an amazing mum who has been inspiring in many ways, and we're with completely different characters, and yet we get on incredibly well. We share the same sense of humour. She has a very dry wit that's extremely amusing. She's a brilliant raconteur and as you say, her memory is sharp as a tack. And I think the podcast came about because we just had enjoyed reminiscing and then I realised that when I put tiny snippets of these conversations up on Instagram or social media, people were, had a real thirst for them. They wanted to hear more. I mean, she's of a generation that is that is really a, a dying breed, I think. The war babies who went through a war and put up with an awful lot of bullshit that we all you know, scream and shout and stuff our feet over they just got on with it and so it was great to have the chance for us to sit together and to for her to tell her stories and for me to ask the questions and of course you know even my mouth dropped open on a couple of occasions for the kind of the shock of, of, of the life that she led yeah and the generation <laughs> the upbringing that she came from where certain things were just taken for granted and you know our generation is so incredibly different to that but it was a wonderful opportunity to do that Another book I read over the summer was your father, David Hicks's scrapbook. Your father is up there with my all-time favorite interior designers, Maria Buada and Sister Parrish. Can you give us a brief overview of your father and a couple of his more notable design projects and then tell us about his love of ice cubes. Well, my father was a very unique character, certainly. You know, I say that he set the world alight with his very dynamic designs, which he did. I mean, he shook up the very quiet English drawing rooms and he mixed colors together that were vibrating, vibrating, never clashing, he said. Um, he mixed geometrics. He put old with new and he really did things in a very different way, and his work is emulated today um, as much as it was in the 60s when he was at the, at the top of his career. He was a whirling dervish, extremely decisive, extremely opinionated, and people paid a lot of money for that opinion because he did have world-class taste. He traveled a great deal. He was very adventurous. He was very experienced in the world of design and really knew every beautiful house, every beautiful garden, every beautiful hostess. And he was a bon vivant. He loved to live life to its fullest. He had some very notable projects. Um, he designed the Prince of Wales's bachelor apartments at Buckingham Palace. He designed the bowling alley of the White House. He designed the American Airlines tie, that geometric A's when the American Airlines first dressed their air stewards. So certainly he's had an illustrious career. He was very uh, definite about certain things. And an ice cube, as you say, was one of them. And he felt that the ice cube should be large and it shouldn't be these ridiculous piddly things that come out of ice machines. Those, those were useless, in his opinion. Um, so he had these very large, there was sort of metal ice trays. And I remember a handle that we had to lever back in order to release these oversized ice cubes into the That handle the never worked. That handle never worked. Never. I think you're right. I don't think that handle did ever work. <laughs> 
Needless to say, I'm a huge fan of your family. Your brother Ashley got me through the quarantine with his delightful Instagram lives where he flipped through the design books and did virtual home tours. Your whole family got me through the quarantine, basically. That's very nice to hear. Ashley, is, he's brilliant and funny um, and very acerbic um, and has a very dry English wit. But he is actually extraordinarily well-read and knowledgeable also. And whilst I was creating my book on Christmas cakes and, and birthday parties, he was devising a book on tombs. And I think for my mother, it must be very funny to see two very different children, both publishing books. Actually, his book on tombs never did get published. So he's probably rather annoyed that my silly book on Christmas crackers did. <laughs> He says, we all love jib doors. I love it when he says that. (laughs) (laughs) That's very him. So your father once wrote in your little autograph book, good taste and design are by no means dependent upon money. Can you talk a little bit about the dinner that you had in L.A. when you still had your company? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I love the fact that you've read all this. And my father was absolutely right. You know, oh, good taste and design are not dependent upon money. And there have been many occasions where we have borrowed things or been very careful and crafty in the way that we have hosted events. And I don't think you need to have overly exorbitant budgets to have a wonderful evening. And when I was in LA and we had, I think it was about 60 or 80 of these amazing women who I had worked with for a while come and join us. We wanted to thank Thank them for their time with the company. We put together this incredible long table. It was very, very dramatic. And we kept thinking, what are we going to be able to do down the center of it? And I realized that we had this overstock of towels, swimming towels. And, and I said, I said, why don't, why don't we use the swimming towels? We can repurpose the swimming towels to go down the middle of the table. And they were blue and white. And then I said, I said, right, that's our theme, blue and white. And we hired some blue and white dinner plates. And then I found these big blue and white paper lanterns, the very, very oriental looking paper lanterns off Amazon. And we tied it with fishing wire onto the end of some bamboo poles. And we got some vases that we put them in. And I think the effect was pretty dramatic. And I think it made the women feel very thanked. And we were, as I said, very careful and crafty with the budget. The girl who was helping me with the event had a brilliant idea, which was she said, never let a friend invite a friend. It's just got to stick to the list. And that's so true. You stick to your list. You don't let someone bring an extra guest. Unless it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the table runner and the whole table looked like, let's say, a blue Staffordshire ad or something like that. Good. Well, I'm glad you think it was at that level. So pretty. So what is your philosophy when it comes to seating arrangements or placement, as the French say? I like a placement, as I I say in my book. I I think there's nothing worse than kind of lingering, waiting to know where you're going to sit or who you're going to end up with and feeling like you're going to be chosen last for the tennis team. I I think it's nice when a hostess immediately says, right, Susie, you're going to be sitting there. David, you're going to be sitting there. Timothy, you're going to be sitting there. I also think it gives an opportunity for the hostess to have really thought a little bit through first so you know who would be interested by sitting next to so-and-so would they actually spark a good and interesting conversation will it make the evening more meaningful for them i think there's nothing worse than sitting next to somebody you know terribly well who you see all the time what is the point of that if you've got the opportunity to meet somebody new or be inspired by somebody or learn from somebody that's so much more interesting You wrote at one dinner party, your mother was sitting next to Lenny Kravitz, and she called him Zinni Crayfish. Yes, the next day she said, how fascinating that chap was. Was he a musician, that Zinni Crayfish? (laughs) So once we're seated, then comes the hard part, the small talk. You stack the guest list with someone you think will be riveting. Tell us about Captain Bob, speaking of riveting. 
Well, anyone who comes to Harbour will know Captain Bob because he runs the local grocery store. But he's a good friend of ours. And his wife and I both have the, the boutique together, the sugar mill. But Captain Bob is just, he's a wonderful local character. And he was at sea for many, many years on a fishing boat. And they would go out for crawfish. And it was a, such a valuable commodity that, that they literally took guns on board the boat because there are modern day pirates out there who would, you know, they, they would be at risk of having their, their cargo feed. So I love the idea that, that he has fought modern day pirates out at sea. He's also been struck by lightning and he's been bitten by a shark. I mean, who doesn't want to sit next to somebody who tells those kinds of tales? <laughs> I love that you're not afraid to use baby's breath on a table. I always used to think of that as kind of, let's say, like a filler for flower arrangement, but it goes so well with a rustic wood table. But I love a filler for a flower arrangement, especially one that you can then dry and use afterwards. Again, it comes down to budget. That's fantastic. I can't bear the waste of flowers when they're when they're dying and you don't know what to do with them. I know. That's such a great idea because you think, oh, I'm just going to throw this away. Yeah. Don't. Dry it. How is entertaining in the Bahamas different from entertaining in England or L.A.? Uh, more challenging just from the fact that, you know, we have one boat that comes once a week. And if the boat doesn't come, then you're kind of screwed. You know, in England, you can pop out to the local uh, supermarket to get something that you may have forgotten. On Harbour Island, it's just much, much harder, much more limited in resources, much more limited in the selection of things that you can get hold of. I think that Oddly, that's made me more resourceful in the way that we decorate. So, you know, when when you pull out your white tablecloth and you realize that actually it's still got wine stains on it and there is no way that you're going to be able to get those out, think about, oh, I'm going to take the bedspread off my bed and use that as a tablecloth because actually that looks so much better when it's washed and pressed on the table than the white tablecloth with the wine stains. So I think we, we are forced to think creatively. Paris is always a good idea, they say. You're in Paris right now with your partner, David Flintwood, and I see that they're shutting down the bars today. Well, that's what I've heard, but I, I was out and about earlier and I didn't notice a tremendous difference. Um, so we'll see what happens. But I think, you know, I, I was very keen to make sure that life moved on and forward as much as possible. Yes, there are some very dramatic and very necessary restrictions on our lives. But we found a way that we were able to come to England. I was able to spend six weeks with my mother. And then we got on a train and came to Paris. And we found an apartment that, that people had left the city. They didn't want to be in the city. And we were able to get the apartment very inexpensively. It's got an amazing view. And for David and I, just for a couple of weeks, it's been so lovely. I know I can pop back on that train and get back to my mother or kids at any stage I need to. And even if the bars are closed, you still get to walk around an amazing, beautiful city. So I'm very, very grateful to be here. And I'm very happy to be here. And I don't really mind if the bars are closed because we can always get a bottle of wine and just sit in the window ourselves and drink it and look at the view. Now to my segment called Last Night's Dinner, where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. Oh, my God. Um, I had, probably not what you're expecting, we had artichokes with a lot of melted butter. Um, and David cooked them in lemon juice, which was rather nice. And then we had a big French baguette with some camembert cheese. And then I finished it off with half a box, and I'm quite proud of that, half a box of After Eights. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what, that's what my, my stomach said as well as I went to bed. Where can we find you on the web and social media? And where can we find your podcast? 
Oh, these are the really lovely questions. On Instagram, India Hicks Style. I write every word, I post every picture, I edit every uh, look and feel of it. Um, so it's very much me. I have a blog. If you go to indiahicks.com, you'll find my blog there. And the podcast, any platform that has podcast, you'll find it's called the India Hicks Podcast. This has been a once in a lifetime treat for me. I cannot thank you enough for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure for me. And how amazing in this world that we can talk from Paris to New York with such ease. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.